Welcome to the Dumb Money Podcast. I'm Carlton English. And I'm Alex Rosenberg. Our job is to be a life raft in a sea of financial bullshit. So you know what else can be considered a sea of bullshit, Alex? Tell me. Twitter. I think this is a pretty apt description. That's actually, that was in their S1. They said, you know, we are a sea of financial <laughs> bullshit. And I say this as, you know, a fan of the platform, too. I actually probably owe my career in journalism to, to, to Twitter, to be honest. Wait, please explain. Well, yeah. So when I made the move from wealth management to writing, um, a lot of the people I met, you know, who gave me my first freelancing gigs, I met on Twitter. This would be back in uh, 2011, 2012. Wow. I guess Twitter was kind of cooler back then. It was like more of a community. It was super cool back then. Yeah. Now I, I still use it. I mean, of all social media platforms, it's the one I like best, but I'm not as euphoric about it as I used to be. Interesting. Wow. So, uh, so some good things can come out of Twitter. Uh, also, some things that are perhaps uh, scientifically spurious. Go on. <laughs> uh, what that that wasn't enough in that sentence to explain what I was talking about. Um, so, in 2010, there was a paper called uh, "Twitter Mood Predicts the Stock Market." Period. Um, it didn't say period, but there was a period um, by by three authors. Uh, published in something called the Jour- Journal of Computational Science. Uh, and I, I don't know, maybe you, you might have uh, remembered clicking around, seeing see, it was in a lot of news stories about, basically they looked at a lot of tweets and the words in the tweets somehow predicted what the Dow was going to do a couple days later. Because of what, like Twitter user sentiment or so how are they? It's not super clear. Um, you know, whenever he's asked that question, he's like, well, maybe, you know, those people are investing or maybe... The people who are investing see that, and then they want to buy or they want to sell. It, it's not it's not made very clear, yeah. So, all right. So, what's happened since then? So, this paper's been out for about seven years now. Um, Twitter yes. has changed a lot since then, of course. So, what's new? So, so what's so interesting is the the way science works, especially science that's heavy on research. Is there's almost like a little piece of crystallized amber that becomes this big dinosaur. Um, I really watched Jurassic Park recently. Uh, And we're kind of just looking at the same period that happened that these authors looked at. But now there's a new paper that just came out uh, in, I think it's Econ Journal Watch, by Michael Shinsky and Stephen Pav, which is called Shy of the Character Limit, Twitter Mood Predicts the Stock Market Revisited, uh, which basically says the original paper uh, did really prove what it said it proved. Did not. Yeah, they basically said, if you go back and look at their data, you know, the way they did it, you don't even get to draw the same conclusion. So there's a war in the academic world right now. Yes, well, well, ac- academia is famous for, for its battles. Um, you, you know, they usually say that the wars in academia are terrible because they are, are so bitter precisely because the stakes are so low. But the stakes are actually not that low here. <laughs> um, because the, the, There's actually money in this one, not just ideas. Yeah, there really is, because these... Because two of the authors of the paper went on to advise a hedge fund called Derwent Capital Markets, which uh, started up to try to use Twitter mood to uh, actually make stock market trades. Um, so how'd that go for them? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, they closed down. They, they apparently had good performance for a month, and then they closed down. And then they started offering a tool, and and now the same company sells a Twitter tool. It, it's not super clear how they did, but I don't think anyone became rich beyond their wildest dreams. So. Okay, so you actually got to speak with the author of the new paper, Michael Lachansky, earlier today, correct? Yeah, so 
I, I think you're really going to enjoy listening to this interview. It, it, it's uh, He's a really smart, thoughtful guy um, who has been working on looking at this other paper for, for some time now. And, and you know, th- there are a lot of problems in the original paper, in the, in the methodology, in the context, which, which we'll get into. But I think what's even more interesting is the issues it brings up with financial research and with, with actually all academic papers in general. So um, so stay tuned for the conversation, but it's, uh, it's a pretty interesting one. All right, let's listen now. Joining us now is Michael Lachansky. He is a graduate student at Princeton in the Woodrow Wilson School, um, and he's the recent author of a paper called Shy, a uh, co-author of a paper, I should say, called Shy of the Character Limit, Twitter Mood Predicts the Stock Market Revisited. Michael, welcome to the uh, podcast here. Thanks for having me on, Alex. So basically, your paper is kind of taking a look at a paper, I think, from 2010 called Twitter Mood Predicts the Stock Market by uh, three authors. And I guess I'm curious, before we get into your paper and some of the arguments you're making, how you found out about or first heard about this original paper, Twitter Mood Predicts the Stock Market, and and what your original reaction was in, in terms of how how'd you get interested in uh, looking at this closer? Well, the paper itself was extremely well cited. So this is the kind of thing that showed, really showed up on every academic's desk. And it also had immense influence, I would say, on Wall Street, in people who were working in quant funds and quant funds that were using NLP at that time. So Without going into too much detail, I was working in an adjacent field, and this paper came up on my desk, and there were a lot of people who were interested in the private sector and seeing if this could be reproduced. Uh, my efforts were not successful, and I was wondering if there was something wrong with you know, my own approach to the problem, and I had heard other people who had similar problems reproducing this in the field and that caught my attention initially. Okay, great. And so you, you kind of took a, a, a really close look at, at a lot of different aspects of the paper um, in your own paper. And I guess if you had to, to boil it down, like what, what's maybe the biggest or the two biggest problems with Twitter Mood Predicts the Stock Market, the, the paper that uh, was published in 2010? Well, the single biggest problem is that when you're testing many hypotheses, when you're running many statistical experiments, let's say, you're going to get some which come up positive by chance. This is You can call this the false positive problem. You um, can adjust for this using multiple comparison uh, adjustments or a technique called multiple hypothesis testing so that you can run Uh, many tests and make sure that you get the correct statistics out of it. In this case, the authors did not do that. And as a result, the p-values or the results of the paper are biased towards finding something quite significant. Yeah. So that's the single biggest problem of the paper. Right. So basically, I mean, you, you say in your paper that... The idea that this paper and the research that was done by uh, Johan Wallen and, and the other authors, they, they're not proving that Twitter predicts the stock market at all. Well, certainly they have multiple statistical tests that they conduct. Mm-hmm. And the for the linear time series section, that's absolutely fair. 
for the nonlinear time series section. It's a little trickier, but they only have 15 days in the data set. And I guess the second biggest problem of the paper is that they're looking at a very specific period, and this is not the kind of thing you would expect to work for all time. Uh, in fact, I wouldn't even expect this thing to work generally. And the reason for that, one very straightforward reason, is that over the long run, uh, the stock market trends upward. It's got a positive unit root or stochastic trend or whatever you want to call it. But in lots of their data set, it actually trends downward. So it's not clear if you take this like wild and crazy time in American history, which you know includes the financial crisis, that you're supposed to be learning about something that holds true for all time. It, it's just not clear that this is going to hold for all time periods. And part of what I do in the paper is look at how this strategy did in 2007, which is closer to the norm for, US, for the U.S. stock market. And as you might expect, it doesn't perform as well or it doesn't perform at all, to be honest. Yeah, I, I just want to take a step back now and, and uh, you know, people should go and read both papers, honestly, but for people to kind of understand the original paper. So they, I'm just going to read this introduction paragraph, the first paragraph of their paper, which is that, because um, it, it kind of hints at some of the problems that they're, they're going to run into, I think. Stock market prediction has attracted much attention from academia as well as business. But can the stock market really be predicted? Early research on stock market prediction was based on random walk theory and the efficient market hypothesis. According to the EMH, stock market prices are largely driven by new information, i.e. news, rather than present and past prices. Since news is unpredictable, stock market prices will follow a random walk pattern and cannot be predicted with more than 50% accuracy. So, Right, so, so you can kind of put that CFA into action, and you know you can already see a mistake, which is that, and this is maybe a little technical or subtle, but the efficient market hypothesis doesn't say that you can't uh, make predictions about the stock market over the long run. For instance, over the long run, you know it's, it's not a 50-50 shot, it goes right. up. But what it says is that you can't beat the market without taking on additional risk. So at first, when I was first reading this study, my, my thought was that they must be taking on some kind of hidden risk, and that's what's enabling them to get these phenomenal results. Mm-hmm. And when I tried to reproduce the paper, I found that it was something much more mundane, which were the two things that I told you at the start. Right, because they didn't, they didn't even try to think about accounting for risk or, or um, accounting for the fact that maybe stocks rise more than 50% of the time, usually. Um, Not at all. Yeah, and then, so, so then what they do, I, I, I probably should have laid this out a little better, but, but then what they do is they kind of look at emotions expressed on Twitter from people saying, I feel calm today, you know, I, I, feel, I feel good, I feel nervous. Um, kind of use those words or phrases and correlate that to what the stock market does four days later. And, and this is really, and it got, it got a ton of media attention. So it got a lot of citations and, and it got a lot of, uh, you know, the, Johan came on CNBC and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and Fox Business. Yeah, there you go. Um, and some of the press was really interesting around it. So I'm look, I have some articles here called Twitter can predict the stock market from Wired. Uh, an article from NPR where they say need stock tips, question mark, read your tweets, where he, I think he kind of reveals, I don't know if this is clear in the paper, that it's kind of this um, very sexy, like, law and order aha moment where 
he some of the person that he's working with finds that the mood analysis and market movement did overlap um and that kind of surprised me he says and this here's a quote and then she says there's one more thing you should know i had to shift the move forward in time by th- two or three days that's when Bola knew it wasn't that the Dow Jones could be used to predict the moon on Twitter, it's that Twitter could be used to predict the Dow Jones. This is astonishing, he said. Which I think goes to some of your point about if you test enough things and move it forward and back enough times, you, you're going to kind of find something interesting. I think that's a great point. And what's interesting that you're bringing up is that some of the auxiliary evidence of that kind that you get from watching the author gives talks also hints at that. They they revealed in one talk that the tool built in the study uh, called the Google Profile of Mood States, which is a great name for a tool, by the way, because many researchers think that it's the Google's profile <laughs> of mood states. So they think that, ooh, this is a tool that Google has developed, and these guys are applying it to the stock market for the first time. When, when as far as I can tell, it's, it's not that at all. It's, it's a tool that takes an input from a data set that was released by Google, and... Uh, and they use that data to build their sentiment analysis tools. Well, during that talk where they describe this, they say that it's been through many revisions. And again, the more revisions, the more things you look for, the more degrees of freedom you give yourself to overfit a pattern that just doesn't hold true for all time. It might hold true in the data, but it's just not that likely to hold true for all time. Right. I, I want to get back to the media attention uh, in a little bit, but... I'm just kind of curious, like I I noticed that, so you're the co-author of this paper and I see you've written a a bunch of different papers about it. It looks like you you won, correct me if I'm wrong, but some undergraduate award for a paper about this paper. Like how much time in all have you spent thinking about, you know, these people's analysis? And and the other kind of humorous thing is that this, your paper I'm holding here is something like 44 pages and their paper is eight pages. Like how much time have you spent thinking about this thing that, that maybe they didn't think about so much themselves? Well, to be honest, it was a senior thesis that got cut into many pieces. And okay. also, sometimes you'll be doing, you know, an econometrics class. They'll ask you for a project. And a trick I learned in grammar school is that if all you're doing is adding to the same project for years <laughs> and years, it can become an A-plus paper. So I had a friend who always wrote about George Washington Carver because – when it was Scientist Month, hey, George Washington Carver. When it was African American History Month, hey, George Washington Carver. And when it was time to celebrate farmers, I think he became a future farmer of America at some point, hey, George Washington Carver. And I think by the time he was done, he, he had probably written uh, you know, 188 pages on George Washington Carver. So it was kind of a similar thing with this paper, to be honest, where Whenever I had a project, I would take a look at what I had done and maybe revisit it from a different angle, think about something new. So if you have an asset pricing class, that's a great opportunity to kind of look at this paper and see if it makes sense. If you're learning about statistics, this is a great, this, this is a great paper to look at. I think actually that this is a very interesting paper. I think the concept is very interesting. Whenever I talk about it, I always take care to mention that in many ways this is extremely innovative Mm. over the existing work in finance. It just didn't work. It was a very interesting idea. And the core idea of the paper, which you can understand, well, let me explain. The core idea of the paper is that 
there is a lot of other kinds of information in text that we're not looking for. Most sentiment analysis for finance schemes, most news analytics schemes only look at positive and negative sentiment in increasingly sophisticated ways. And these authors who come from the world of collective psychology, that's what a lot of their papers are on. Mm -hmm. Some of their papers are on bibliometrics. Some of their papers are on big data. They came at this with a much more sophisticated approach. And they said, well, what if the entire spectrum of human emotion is what we should be looking for in articles and in text? What if, what if an article has an angry tone? Can we learn something about that that we wouldn't learn just from positive and negative valences? And I think that idea is very interesting as a hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Now, it turns out that in their data, they, don't, they find that, well, hypothesis debunked. Only calm for only for the emotion column do they find strong evidence. And as far as I can tell, that's just a statistical artifact of the design. And what it tells you is that in the world of big data, when you have not just um, big data itself, as in a lot of data points, but complicated hypotheses as well, you need to be very careful that the complexity of what you're trying to do doesn't outstrip the resources you have in some ways. And you need to be very careful about that in your study design, I guess, if you're a financial econometrician. Yeah, you, you talk about something in the paper called uh, the danger zone. I'd love for you to, to tell us a, a little bit about uh, what that is. Sure. So these authors' work is an example of a kind of interdisciplinary research that utilizes large amounts of data from the web to learn something about our society. In fact, when you hear the words big data, 95% of the time, 99% of the time, that's what it is. Sometimes it'll be astronomical data, that's also big data, genomic data. To some extent, we haven't really utilized that as much as we could to learn about society. But these 99% of the time, they're talking about utilizing all of this data from the web and typically to sell you ads, but sometimes to predict stocks. So, so what? So to make this new kind of knowledge, to bring this new kind of knowledge into the world, we need multiple types of intelligence. We need intelligence about how, how you can manipulate data on a computer. You can call that hacking skills. We need statistical intelligence, which falls more into the realm of what it, you can call it traditional statistics. And then we need domain expertise. And many things in the danger zone occur when people have hacking skills and also domain expertise, but they don't have the statistical knowledge to know what they're looking at, and they're very likely to make a mistake. So the kind of error that I think you see in this paper where they test 50 hypotheses and don't even and don't try to adjust for the complexity of what they're trying to do is almost a perfect example of something falling into the danger zone. And what's cool about that chart that shows up in the paper is that Drew Conway, who I believe is the gentleman who came up with this concept, developed it into the 2009-2010. So he already foresaw some of the problems that were coming down the pike. And so there are many other papers, even in finance, 
and some in good journals that have these kinds of problems. I'm not going to talk about them because I'm not as sure, but this paper I thought was really one of the best examples of that, where it's an interesting idea. The authors obviously know the field very well. Um, maybe they could have gotten someone from financial theory or financial econometrics, and I think in more recent papers they have, but they certainly know a lot about collective psychology. They know about the landscape of social media, um, and they can certainly do a lot in Python or MATLAB, mm -hmm. but when it came to understanding their results and what they meant, uh, there was just a little bit left to be desired, and that, that eventually was reflected in the fate of the hedge fund that was started to take advantage of this finding, or that was attempted to take advantage of what they thought they found. Yeah, so, so that, that's, a, that's a good segue, because I'd like to touch on that hedge fund a little bit, but um, I, I, I guess... I understand your reticence to talk about specific papers because you you this is like your uh, George Washington Carver and, and you know this paper backwards and forwards uh, unlike other ones. So, but but how big of a problem is this with within um, financial research and, and to to a similar extent? I mean, uh, algorithmic trading and that sort of thing has such become such a big thing in hedge funds. And I think there's this idea that with enough data, you could almost uh, you could tell the future. Um, I guess. How big of a problem do you think this this is more generally, where people are good at uh, getting data, good at understanding, you know, the way data works, um, but don't really have the context to to, uh, to to place it in a broader framework? Like, do we have to be more more and more skeptical of more papers we read throughout finance and, and actually probably throughout uh, all the, all the sciences? Or yes, we should absolutely be more skeptical about it as it gets easier to do this kind of statistical work at scale, there's going to be more and more fantastic things. And I think to some extent, this is really a problem of the financial media. Mm. Because in my perspective, it's the role of the media to try to act as gatekeepers or guardians of the knowledge that they put out there. They, the world of finance is outstripping the world of financial journalists well, let me say it instead of the world, financial journalists, bullshit detectors, which is that with so many fantastical things, some of which are true, it becomes hard for people to use their common sense and intuition if they haven't worked in the field itself to mm. get a grip on, on what makes sense and what doesn't. So I do recall actually one or two articles um, which cast just the tiniest bit of skepticism on this study and I remember that was so notable because so many others simply reported it as though it was, uh, it was from God's honest truth, even before it had gone to publication. And I know for other studies, if it's something which might be politically incorrect, they'll say, oh, well, this hasn't been peer-reviewed yet. Mm -hmm. Well, that's very interesting that you seem to draw up the peer review as the golden seal for maybe something which... Uh, which they would their intuition tells them is wrong or that they should disapprove of but for something like this which sounds fantastical and captures the zeitgeist you know there's no they, they suddenly drop the standard for what's reportable so there were journalists who i think did the right thing who said well maybe uh this we should just take a step back this does seem a little fantastical give it time look back in six months you can always look back in six months i think that's that would have been the winning play. That can often be the winning play. Mm -hmm. But um, but I think it, it requires in some ways that that 
I think as financial journalists that we retool because you know when you when I'm on the phone with you I'm a financial journalist and a lot of the people I admire have really been able to move across that world of finance academia to finance journalism to being a practitioner and I think that the CFA or getting some kind of certificate so you can understand really what people do every day can really just can be such an immense asset does, does that make sense I well yes I, I could not agree with you more uh, I, I think I mean ideally there are kind of three gatekeepers where the skepticism happens and one is at the journal level one is at the uh, media level and that's probably the most important one since since that's where the most people get touched and but then then there's you know at the individual level where you know you see Twitter can predict the stock market and you read the paper and uh, I mean frankly it kind of just shouldn't pass the smell test in a way I mean just the tweets of of everybody for a very short period um, as proof that Twitter can predict the stock market I, I guess if there was something for people who can't go in and, and buy the tweets from Twitter and, and run their own, uh, you know, little data uh, programs, not, not that yours was little, but um, if there was something that people could look out for when they're making their own decisions about research that they're curious about, um, you know, what, what are some of the signs people might want to look for? So retail investors or sophisticated investors, I think are really significant divide here. Okay. Um, for the retail investor, I would advise them just not to read white papers. I think they should pick up a copy of a random walk down Wall Street, basically follow the advice there, and not really, not try to do things to increase the returns. The data is just so strong yeah. that when retail investors get involved, and it's, it's not just been one, it's been 40 years of research that just shows that as a retail investor, um, it's hard, even if you're a professional, to make money on Wall Street, to outperform the market. There are 86%, it's always around that number, of market professionals will fail to outperform the index over the long term, in the United States at least. Mm. So when you're, when you're up against those odds, I really think that the retail investor over the long run can get five, six, seven times the return that they can get in a banking account just by putting their money into a passive index like Vanguard right. or you know, any anything that tracks the S&P 500. So that's my unequivocal advice. There are exceptions to that rule depending on your age. If you're very young, it might be worth taking on a certain kind of risk. But then these exceptions are really individual and they should be the kind of thing that I think you try to consult the trusted financial advisor with. So that's my advice for the retail sure. investor. For the sophisticated investor that has access to market opportunities, that hedge funds, and um, that normal people don't have access to, uh, I'm very hesitant to say that everything that comes across your desk that says that you're going to get a sharp ratio of over one is, is, should be ignored. But that's usually a good barometer. If it's saying that you're going to get a sharp ratio of over one, it's uh, and if you don't know what a sharp ratio yeah, is, us, yeah. that should also be a warning sign. <laughs> a sharp ratio is a measure of portfolio performance. Uh, basically, you should learn to calculate what a sharp ratio is. Ask them if you're getting a sharp ratio over one. If you're getting a sharp ratio over one, wait, just wait six months and come back to it. I think, you know, it's it's 
that would have protected you from Madoff. That would have protected you from a lot of shenanigans in the world. And I, I think the rule of thumb is that if it's too good to be true, it probably isn't. Now, there are things you can do. Like, you can ask, what kind of risk am I taking? I know if I'm going to get money, I'm going to be taking on some kind of risk. What kind of risk am I taking? And if your hedge fund manager or advisor can give you a straight answer that sounds good to you, um, why not put two or three or four or five percent of your money into it, but or of your of your net assets? I think that's that's more reasonable. But in general, you should always index your core. I think the vast majority of in, of investors, both retail and sophisticated should have 60, 70% of their assets tied to the Vanguard or S&P 500. So yeah, that's well, my advice. Yeah, you're, you're preaching the car. I, th- I think that's that's a really good point. Um, you know, it, it's just, it's so interesting with this paper because you were talking about how it was an interesting concept. It, it just, it, and it was executed well, it just it just it didn't really cohere and, and they kind of, uh, ended up maybe disproving that that mood is well not disproving but but it may, maybe said more to say that that Twitter the tweets don't predict the stock market that, than do um, it's just kind of funny to me how I think you you mentioned the term publication bias in, in in your paper and it's almost like I think this is a really important discussion we're having and it but it's almost a discussion we couldn't have if the errant uh, paper hadn't come out and received so much publicity. I mean, in a way, and I don't mean this to be rude, but you're almost riding the coattails of the bad paper um, because that's kind of the sexy, like, the coverage of your paper that I saw was, oh, turns out Twitter can't predict the stock market. So it's kind of that that sexy thing where I don't think a paper about how Twitter, how tweets couldn't predict the stock market would have gotten this much publicity in the first place, if you see what I'm getting at. Hey, I'll take my 1,000 downloads any way I can. I'll ride anyone's uh, coattails. If they, get me, if they can get me 250 citations, I'll ride those coattails for a year. But I agree that there really is a problem where results which are not counterintuitive just don't get published. I think there needs to be kind of a vehicle that academics can get credit for if they find boring results that conform to the existing theory. Right. Um, I think simply having a vehicle for that would eliminate a lot of this kind of bias which occurs when academics look for some counterintuitive effect in the market, discover that theory works, which it doesn't always. I'm not, I'm not 100% on board with uh, you know, efficient market hypothesis, neoclassical theory. There definitely are uh, cracks in the wall here, mm-hmm. but... I think there really needs to be a vehicle that academics at maybe not at the top levels, but at a R2 or lower ranked R1 university can get credit for that will enable them to say, Hey, look, theory is working actually pretty good here. And what that will allow us to do is in meta analyses, confirm and get a better grip on what the actual data looks like when people are going through 400 studies it will eliminate what's called the desk drawer effect which is when you have a study where you find nothing special you just put it in your desk drawer we need to get the papers out of these desk drawers and kind of into somewhere where they can be used i think to give investors to give future academics and kind of regular people uh, a sense of what 
the truth is about markets. And the truth is often that you really can't make money, at least not without taking on some kind of weird risk or discovering some temporary opportunity. Uh, and that takes, which is a lot of hard work, by the way. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important point. Um, by the way, do you think you're, you're, you've kind of done your, your uh, magna opus on, the, on your George Washington Carver? And if so, what are, you, uh, what are you working on next? Just kind of curious on, on what's next on your research uh, docket, Michael. Well, I'm hoping that I, I have mixed feelings. They haven't responded to anything that I published in undergraduate journals. And I, I've actually emailed the authors multiple times without response. Yeah, I, I, I should just mention, sorry, I just wanted to mention, actually, we reached out to the authors, and not surprisingly, they didn't get back to us, but if they do, we'll, we'll add something at the end of the podcast, but just wanted to let the audience know that. Yeah, I, yeah, I reached out to the authors multiple times, because to be frank, there's also a lot of ambiguities in the paper, where maybe if you just twist all these knobs right, you can get something closer to their results. But, uh, you know, at this stage, I'm pretty much done. I'm looking forward to moving on to other projects. I'm interested in more policy relevant things. I think this was a fun, you know, a fun detour into the world of financial economics and I've spent some time there. But my next research will be more policy relevant. I actually can't talk about it, but okay. when there's a working paper draft, uh, I think it's going to do quite well. I think it's going to get if anything more media coverage than uh, than this one. And uh, you'll be the first to know, Alex. All right, very good. I, I'm a little bummed you're you're leaving the uh, the world of financial uh, economics research. We we, we need no, some no, skeptical I'm not people. It I'm not leaving it forever. All right. Yeah, I'm not leaving it forever. But my next paper will not be about finance. Okay, fair enough. Um, great. Well, well, thanks so much for your time, Michael. This is uh, really fascinating. All right, glad to be in touch, Alex. Thanks for calling. Thanks. Wow, that was a really engaging conversation, and Michael uh, really took you through the rabbit hole of academia. Yeah, he was fascinating, and, and uh, thanks to him so much for for joining us. It's, it's interesting to me because these some of these problems with um, with academic research uh, remind me of some of the problems of of investors. I mean, like if you go to the original paper, and, and we didn't really talk about this number, but the final sentence of the abstract for Twitter Mood predicts the stock market. I'm going to read it here. We find an accuracy of 87.6% in predicting the daily up and down changes in the closing values of the DJIA and a reduction of the mean average percentage error by 1.6%. So one of Michael's points is that anytime you think that you just um, have an incredible opportunity to either have an advantage over the market thanks to your scientific research or thanks to your smarts or or what have you, or thanks to your fund manager even, like you're probably missing something because it's not that easy. And so the way that dovetails for scientific research and for investing uh, is just kind of interesting to me. Yeah, I would think, you know, when I read some of these types of studies um, or even proclamations made by, you know, fund managers or wannabe fund managers, I'll just say my BS detector starts to go off when someone talks about something happening with greater than 75% certainty. It just it's too close to always guaranteeing that I just start to have a flood of questions after that. I, I totally agree. It's like the um, 
it's like that that manager who said uh, in Atlanta was it uh, that great article oh the spreadsheet by, guy yeah the, yes where he he said he can promise you positive returns every year but you're not allowed to take your money out for 10 years and we're not going to tell you how we're making the money something like that exactly and it's all being run on one excel spreadsheet and uh yeah so let's give credit that was a great piece done by bloomberg um i think it was july august of 2016 um my understanding and we'll have to double check this um is i don't think it took too long for uh you know the sec to Look into those claims. We'll just leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. It, Simone Foxman, right, was was the author. It was a great piece of reporting there. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, so, so it, it's one of those, I mean, it, we could go back to the kind of uh, Craig Carton, uh, can't fool an honest man scheme, but but here's something a little different. Like, this is a case, and, and that um, hedge fund, uh, Derwent Capital Markets, this is a case where they probably really believed that they were onto something. Um, they, they weren't trying to fool people, you know, I mean, maybe they were trying to look at a lot of different time frames and find something that worked, but you get the sense, and, and certainly the media reporting about it, like, you get the sense people have this magical need to think that they can outperform the stock market, th- this idea that somehow, you know, it, it must be possible. It, it, it's like that movie Pi where he sees all the numbers and like, I must be able to predict these numbers because I'm so smart and I have so much data. Um, it's this kind of hubris that I find really fascinating. Yeah, it's the other thing that gets me, and I've shared this with you, and I'll mask some of the details of it. But um, you know, I someone I know who has a strong math background, a very strong math background, um, you know, reached out to me knowing my background in wealth management. Um, you know, they were looking for a new financial advisor, and they found one near where they live. That was the reason for seeking a new financial advisor was just you know they had made a major move and wanted someone closer to them. Um, and this person, you know, relies mostly on technical analysis and said that uh, he has a model that, you know, beats the market almost all of the time. Mm-hmm. Now, again, I've stressed this. The person who was asking me uh, practices the type of math that even your average intelligent person wouldn't even know where to begin. We're not talking algebra and calculus. I mean, it's, you know, multiple levels above that. So if there was anyone who could on the back of an envelope, do the math to prove that that would be wrong, it would be this person. But still, because, you know, the want for a more secure future, um, you know, just the personal aspects of finance, um, you know, still wanted to invest with this person. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's to me, it's not even about the money for, for a lot of people. It, it's it's about outsmarting the system. It's, it's like the counting cards thing where... Um, Wow, counting cards is really not something you should talk about on a podcast. But I, I used to, <laughs> to try to do it, and you know, I learned a whole system, and and I knew that even if I was really successful, I mean, I was making just because I was playing at such low stakes, and I maybe in a best case scenario, maybe I was making fifteen dollars an hour while I was playing, and if you include all the study time, I mean, we're really down in, in the very low single digits in terms of dollars per hour. But it wasn't like here's my way to get money or here's you know this is gonna be my new job it was always like ooh, you know how smart am i can i outsmart the system um did not go well for me by the way i, I think my system was okay but you know, who, who knows i was probably making some mistakes um but but i think a lot of these things to outsmart the market are ways to 
show you're smarter. I mean, the market's everybody. So, so if you can outsmart the market, you're smarter than everybody. It's it's that kind of uh, that kind of a ego driven thing, I would think. Absolutely. So, you know, what else you know really moved you when you were talking to uh, Michael? Well, I really agreed with his idea, and it's actually not a super popular opinion. I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on it, but his idea that the financial media serves an important role as gatekeepers, as as stopping some of this bullshit from getting from people who, you know, are smart people who maybe don't understand the market super well. Um, I'm not saying about this about these authors, but maybe other people who are, for instance, selling a hedge fund and are trying to show that they can beat the market, knowing full well that they're just manipulating the data. Um, and that it's kind of the role of the financial press to be the, the, the gatekeepers, the, the stopgap between that and the public, um, because people are so want to believe what they read. I, 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 I really agree with them um, on that, and, and I, I think it's so important for people in the financial press to to educate themselves um, about the market. And uh, and honestly, it just makes me upset when I, you know, just looking at some of these articles where no skepticism is applied, and um, and it because it, people can really be be misled. Yeah, it's it's definitely a challenge um, because you know there's often studies that come out with these very sexy conclusions that you know news unfortunately is a business, um, so you know getting the right type of headline, the right type of conclusion out could uh, make a website do very well for a day, but then you know it might not always be a valid study. I remember um, what was it last fall there was something that came out about hedge fund managers who drive average cars. Oh, God. I yeah. wrote about this, so I'm mortified. But yes, go on. <laughs> so it was a study that came out about um, hedge fund managers who drive average cars perform better than, you know, your flashy hedge fund managers, you know, the ones driving Ferraris and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, for the outlet I'm at, it's definitely a very sexy story. I mean, anything where you can talk about Porsches and Ferraris um, and, you know, lots of money. And I ended up not writing about it um, just because when I went on the website that these people said that they used to, you know, get their data, you know, using uh, publicly available VIN numbers and being able to track uh, owners and things like that. Um, and I just typed in, you know, a few names, you know, prominent hedge fund people who I would think would be easy to search and, you know, try to tick and tack and replicate the data. I kept getting errors on that website. Now, the paper came out, so it's certainly possible that because there was a flood of activity on it after the paper came out with, you know, hundreds of other people probably trying to do the exact same thing that I was. Um, but it just, and I'm not saying that the paper's conclusion was wrong necessarily, but it was just, I could not replicate the findings, you know, in a few minutes. So I didn't feel comfortable running with it. Yeah, you know, I... I uh... <laughs> I, I found my article uh, about it. I actually had, I think I booked the author on on, uh, on a show on CNBC. Um, I probably didn't apply enough skepticism now, now that I'm looking at it. Because it, like you said, it, it's it's a sexy um, idea. Uh, it's difficult because, you know, something comes out, it's published in a major journal or, or in a minor journal, and it's something you want to talk about and... and it, it's just tough to, to serve that gatekeeper role, especially when, you know, li, li, like you were talking about, like 
you're not an expert in doing data research. That's not your day-to-day job. It has nothing to do with your day-to-day job, actually. So to serve as a gatekeeper is is a lot to ask. I mean, this is why I think the journals should also serve that role, that the journals that are publishing the work. But um, I don't know. I, I think the least that we can do, and which I probably didn't do in that story, was to apply some skepticism, especially when we're talking about like 87 you know, predicting the market with an 80%, 7% certainty, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a tough thing, because like you said, um, you know, a lot of reporters are trained as reporters first, and a lot of reporters get their financial training on the job. Right. So it is a tough thing to ask, but, you know, it's it's just the same skepticism that you would apply, you know, interviewing a politician or something else, you know, should also be applied in financial matters as well. Right, I mean, it's tricky, though, because we're kind of trained to want to believe academics and to give credence and, and probably rightfully so to that they know what they're writing about so well. I mean, these papers take, you know, a year or two years and they're hopefully peer reviewed and, and they get comments. And so we want to trust academics more than, than other people in finance. But, uh, you know, even here, I, I think this is great to talk about just as, as a case where you know, again, like some of these headlines, like Twitter can predict the stock market, you know, is a headline in Wired, like that, that's really, uh, honestly, irresponsible. And, and just because a researcher says something doesn't doesn't make it true. So yeah, and I mean, the other thing on that too, which um, at the time that the first paper came out, Twitter was not a publicly traded company. But for, you know, when Twitter became public for a headline like that, I mean, that's, not only is it possibly market moving in the broader sense, but also for Twitter's market cap. And if, you know, something like that can be debunked. Yeah, the, the point is really salient because the original paper, I believe, bought information like tweets from Twitter, information from Twitter. Um, I know that uh, Michael bought information from Twitter or, or his co-author or, or their institutions or whatever, but they bought information from Twitter. The hedge fund, uh, I think, was buying information from Twitter. So, yeah, it, it really is true because if people, if Twitter could be a huge source of this market-moving information, I mean, that's that's like pure profit for Twitter. Uh, alas. <laughs> <laughs> All right then. Well, I'm thoroughly depressed right now, Alex. I don't know about you. Hey, you know what? If you read the Iliad, the problem is and any Greek work, you know. Even any modern work, the the greatest sin is hubris, and I, I, we learned that again today. To to go oh, back okay. to my classics professor, but now you know what? Maybe I shouldn't even believe my classics professor. Maybe hubris doesn't mean that. I, I don't know what to think. <laughs> All right, we'll leave it at that. Alex. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm I'm just kidding. I I uh, he was uh, wow. He, he knew his Homer. It was he, he would have a big ring and he would go hubris. Hubris. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, Okay, before we go too far off track, uh, Carlton, good night. Uh, goodbye. Good luck. All right. Have a good night, Alex. Bye. <laughs>